Good morning. You guys be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be looking at 1529 through 161. 1529 through 161. A little recap. Last week we saw Jesus lead the disciples to a place where no traditional Jew would go in order to finally get away from the crowds into the pagan Gentile land of Tyre and Sidon. While there, a Syrophoenician woman recognized Jesus. And Matthew, insultingly, he calls her a Canaanite here in order to highlight that she was from a lineage that would be despised and even hated by any traditional Jew, by all the Jewish people. This woman knew the Jews hated her, but she was desperate, and she started calling out to Jesus again and again. She had nowhere else to go, and she says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And her call for help led to one of the most awkward and unusual encounters in any of the Gospels. First, in verse 23, Jesus completely ignored her request for help. Next, it gets worse. In 24, he explicitly tells her that he has no obligation to help her or her daughter because he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in 25 and 26, when she continues begging for mercy, Jesus flat out insulted insulted this hurting woman, telling her that it wouldn't be right for him to take the children's bread and, and buy children, he was clearly referring here to the Jews, and give it to the dogs... And by dogs, he's clearly referring to her, to her daughter, and to everyone of her ethnicity. This encounter certainly doesn't seem very Jesus-like, does it? Well, what's going on? Well, by the end of this unsettling encounter, we begin to see Matthew peeling back the curtain to give us a glimpse into what Jesus is doing. Jesus is in a place no traditional Jew would ever want to go, and he's encountered by a woman who no traditional Jew would ever want to help. But by temporarily refusing to grant this woman's request, uh, he highlights her unshakable, persevering, humble faith. He puts it on display for us. And in the end, she, like the Gentile Roman centurion whose slave Jesus healed in 8, 5 through 13, she, she displays a faith that's greater than anything that Jesus has seen in all of Israel. Jesus has rebuked the Jewish crowds and leaders for their unbelief several times in the book of Matthew, and he's challenged the disciples concerning the smallness of their faith. But here, for just the second time in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus commend a person for having great faith. And in both instances, the faith that's great is the faith that's in the Gentile person. Matthew 15, 28, Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great, and it shall be done for you as you wish. And finally, he does what he intended to do the entire time. He has compassion. Our compassionate Savior has compassion and He heals her daughter. In the end, we, have, we had a happy ending. Jesus healed her poor daughter. Is it right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs? No. But the woman, being poor in spirit, was content with being called a dog as long as she could still get the scraps that fell from the kind-hearted master's table. But good news, Jesus has much more in mind for the Gentile believer than mere scraps that fall from the table. 
as Jesus predicted earlier when responding to the Roman centurion's faith in 810 through 13. He said of the Roman centurion, I have not found such great faith in anyone in Israel. And I say to you, many will come from the east and west, from outside of Jewish lands, and recline at the table, not beside the table like dogs, but recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the actual sons of the kingdom, he said, would be cast out into outer darkness. In last week's narrative, we got a glimpse at this glorious truth as Matthew peeled back the curtain a little bit. But in this week's text, and the section extending really through the entirety of 16, we see the curtain ripped open to more fully manifest this glorious mystery. We're going to look at the section 1529 through 161 this morning, starting at 1529. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee... And having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him, bringing with him them those that were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And... Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to him, said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them, and he started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowd, Jesus got into the boat and came into the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and scribes came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. We're going to look at this place that they're in, the people to whom Jesus is ministering, that Jesus is performing miracles in this place and for this people, And then the point of this entire narrative here. So let's begin by considering where this familiar narrative takes place because the location is key in understanding the significance of this entire section of Scripture. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee and having gone up on a mountain, he was sitting there. Jesus and the disciples departed from there, from the faraway regions of Tyre and Sidon, and went where? Well, Matthew's a little bit vague, isn't he? He says, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. And that that begs the question, where on the Sea of Galilee? When we think of the Sea of Galilee, we think of all things Jewish, don't we? Everybody else here? Automatically we do. But in reality, there are many cities. There are many areas and regions around the Sea of Galilee, and not all of them were majority Jewish cultures. Not by a long shot. 
One such non-Jewish area is a large area that Matthew has mentioned previously, but we've not considered in any depth. It's the area known as the Decapolis, on the southeast side of the sea. Decapolis is a compound Greek word. And y'all know more Greek than you think you do. What's Decapolis mean? Deca means ten. Where we get the word, what? Decade. A period of ten years. You didn't know you knew Greek, did you? But deca, decade, ten. And polis, which is a city like Indianapolis or Minneapolis or Metropolis, which means mother city. We, y'all, see, see, y'all are Greek scholars, y'all are. You didn't even know, did you? So, so Decapolis is ten cities. The Decapolis got its name from ten city-states that were located within its boundaries. And this area, as its Greek name would suggest, is primarily a Gentile region. Furthermore, it was very Hellenized. Any of you remember Hellenized from when you were in school, what that means? It's a fancy word that means that the area had adopted Greek architecture. It had adopted Greek language and customs and culture. In and around these ten cities, archaeologists have discovered the ruins of amphitheaters and forums and many pagan statues and monuments honoring the various gods of the pantheon. you got statues of Zeus and Aphrodite and Athena and Hercules and others. And no serious-minded Orthodox Jew would have wanted to live there. They recognized it as a paganizing influence and they would have been leery about spending too much time in those cities because the efforts to Hellenize the residents was intentional. They loved Greek culture and they wanted everybody to think like they thought and be like they were. That was the superior culture in their mind. They were very evangelistic, so to speak, about their Greek culture. So it was the kind of place that parents, Jewish parents, would have warned their children about. Much like how a serious-minded Christian views the majority culture around us today. Like education, Hollywood, sports, news, and media. They want to, what, educate you, indoctrinate you into secularism. They want to cut against the Christian worldview. And we're like, hey, you've got to be leery of those places. The Jews are that way. They want to Hellenize you. You've got to be leery of those places. If we interact, we do so with a proverbial filter running, don't we? We're very careful... And we want to limit our exposure. Well, such was the serious-minded Jewish attitude toward the Decapolis. So any Jew who lived there, there were some there. It wasn't like Tyre and Sidon where they were shaking the dust from their feet and trying to get in and out just as fast as they could. Some did live there around the Sea of Galilee. But the ones that actually did would be less devout. It would be your less knowledgeable people about the popular trendy teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. There wasn't even a synagogue in any of the cities of the Decapolis until after Jesus' death and resurrection. So I'm sure you can see why we need to know where along the Sea of Galilee that they were. Jesus was ministering uh, to... Uh, we, we have to understand where along the Sea of Galilee that Jesus was ministering in order to rightly understand the people that he encounters and the general th- thrust of this entire section. So although Matthew doesn't tell us directly where Jesus is along the Sea of Galilee, we do know. 
There are contextual elements that would have made the Gentile-centric nature of this narrative clear to Matthew's Jewish readers. We don't catch them. But there's no need for us to go into all those arguments because Mark tells us directly where they were. In Mark's parallel passage in Mark 7.31, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, guess where? Within the region of the Decapolis. So now we ask, why did Jesus leave Tyre and Sidon and go to Decapolis? Well, I want to offer at least three reasons. One is ministry. Yes, Jesus wanted to get away temporarily with the disciples. Both he and they needed a break from constant ministry work. Sometimes we get there, don't we? But that, and that's the reason he went to Tyre and Sidon to begin with. In Mark 7.24, they got up and went from the, to the region of Tyre. And when he entered the house, he wanted no one to know it, yet he couldn't escape notice. Some even noticed him that far away and in an explicitly Gentile place. We have that woman of the Syrophoenician woman who does recognize him. But he was far, li- far less likely to be recognized in those distant pagan lands than he was in these lands closer to home. But God's rest time is over. Undoubtedly, his heavenly mission was on his mind even during his brief retreat. Brothers and sisters, keep your heavenly mission on your mind. All the time. Your life is a stewardship. We can't just shut it off. We can't just forget about it. God has given you your life and you are a steward of every moment of every day. And Jesus never forgot that. Being mindful of the enormity of our God-given task will make sure that we never become addicted to the idols of rest, leisure, or relaxation. And they're idols I've fallen into many, many times. I bet you won't be surprised to know Jesus never fell into those idols, did he? There was work to be done. There There were people to serve. There were disciples to train. And Jesus was driven to carry out his mission. He had to be about his Father's business. So we, we know why he went back to an area where he was likely to be recognized again, but why did he choose Decapolis instead of going back to Galilee? And that was a matter of safety. Remember that there was a lot of threats against Jesus at this time. There were political threats where Herod wanted him dead. There were uh, religious threats where the local Gentile Pharisees and scribes wanted him. They were out to destroy him, trying to consider how they might destroy him, we saw in 12, 14, and 15. And now we have the Jerusalem Pharisees with all their clout. They came down. He absolutely castigated those guys and publicly humiliated them. So now he's got you know, Pharisees with, high, with more clout than the others. And it's kind of a dangerous area for him to be in. But Decapolis was kind of an independent area. It was wedged between the regions of the north that were ruled by Philip the Tetrarch and the regions of the south and the west that were ruled by Herod Antipas who thought that Jesus was, of course, John the Baptist raised from the dead therefore would have been out to get him if he ever had the chance. But Decapolis was joined as a league by the Romans to control the trade route that went from Arabia to Damascus and to provide protection for the eastern frontier. And because of the strategic value that the area offered, provided for Rome, they enjoyed a large measure of autonomy. For the most part, the Decapolis ruled their own affairs. In fact, they were even allowed to coin their own money. I mean, nobody gets to do that. They could. So no Jewish ruler had any authority in Decapolis and they kept their noses out of their business. So it was safer for Jesus in 
and the disciples politically in Decapolis. And also for obvious reasons, the area was less of a danger to Jesus and the disciples on the religious front as well because only a small percentage of the Decapolis population was Jewish at all. And the Jews that did live in the area were much more tolerant of people who disregarded the tradition of the elders. I mean, they didn't even observe the tradition of the elders themselves or they wouldn't have lived in the Decapolis, right? So they were probably overly tolerant of the false gods around them. They became numb to it. And less insistent on the exclusivity of their own religious claims. That's what a melting pot culture does, by the way. That's what it, we've seen it in our own culture, haven't we? You bring more and more people of different religions in, and before long, nobody actually believes their own religion at all. It's just our religion is just something, and everybody has theirs, and we just, ah, you know, you believe whatever you want to believe, and I believe what I want to believe. And that had happened in Decapolis, even amongst these Jewish people. They had more or less been assimilated into the dominant culture around them and would have been much more likely to even be friends with their Gentile neighbors. There were certainly no scribes and Pharisees for Jesus to contend with, which is good because they all wanted to kill him, right? So it's good that he didn't have to worry about them. And no pious Jew would spend any real time in Decapolis, which is why there wasn't even a synagogue. The whole situation provided safety. But also there's another reason that I think he went to Decapolis. He wanted to do ministry again. It's what he was here for. He needed, they wanted safety. But there was an, a, an element of discipleship that needed to take place. He needed to teach his own disciples something. The statement, he went up into the mountain and when he was set, and he sat down. It, take, it should take the thinking back, mind back. Somebody that reads the book of Matthew regularly, it should take you back somewhere to the Sermon on the Mount and seeing the multitudes. He went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and caught them saying. So you, you get this, this teaching atmosphere. Same words that are used in Matthew 5. And this time, though, we have no, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, because it was Jesus' actions that would do the teaching. Remember the central teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? 520. Except your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even inherit, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. Right? Remember to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs? The poor in spirit. Remember who will inherit the earth? It's the meek, the humble, and the gentle. Remember who will receive mercy? Well, it's the merciful. The disciples still looked up to the Pharisees and they still looked down on the Gentiles. This narrative sets up a change of perspective. And let's consider who Jesus ministers to here. Who are the people that he's ministering to in this Gentile land? Well, verse 30, large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet. When Jesus was in Tyre and Sidon, Matthew only mentions one Canaanite woman who recognized Jesus and follows him desiring a miracle. But now Jesus comes to disciples and we have large crowds. Large crowds came to him. We don't know how the Canaanite woman knew who Jesus was, but the crowd in Decapolis is unsurprising if you studied the book of Matthew or the Gospels. They knew who Jesus was. How? Well, two different ways which would have produced two overlapping streams of people. 
First, Jesus had passed through the Decapolis before. Remember back in 8, 28 through 34 when Jesus passed through the country of the uh, Gadarenes, as Matthew called it, the country of Gadara, which is one of the ten cities of the Decapolis? Obviously not a Jewish city, which is why they're farming pigs, right? Remember, they were pig farmers. And Jesus ran into two men who were possessed by demons. Nobody could even pass through the area because they were so violent because of the demon possession. They just run everybody off and nobody could even bind them. Remember that? And Jesus mercifully cast the legion of demons out of these two demoniacs and allowed them to go into their herd of pigs and the pigs ran down in an embankment into the water and they all drowned. And the pig farmers didn't like that because pigs are worth money, aren't they, Michael? Right? So it caused first a negative stir. In 834 through 35, the herdsmen ran away and went into the city and reported everything, including what happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city. So the whole city, it says. This one of the ten cities. The whole city had came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. So at least the whole city of Gadara knew who Jesus was. But that's not the end of the story. Mark tells us what happened with the demoniac. We don't hear this from Matthew, but Mark lets us know. In Mark 5, 18-20, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been demon-possessed, was imploring him that he might accompany him. Hey, people that are changed by Jesus, they want to be around Jesus stuff. I know a lot of people that say they're saved, they say they're Christians, they say they're going to heaven, and they don't want to talk about religion. They don't want to talk about the Bible. They don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. Saved people want to be around Jesus. Okay? This guy did. Wanted to be around Jesus. But, but Jesus wouldn't let him. And he said instead, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis... Jesus said, go to your own home and tell those people. He went all over Decapolis saying, hey, I'm that crazy guy down in Gadara who nobody could even go through the region because I was so infested with demons that nobody could even handle me. And Jesus got rid of that. Now I'm clothed and in my right mind. That Jesus is something. He went and told everybody. And the whole Decapolis about who Jesus was. And the Bible tells us that everyone was amazed. The demoniac not only told his people, but went through all of the capitalists, and the, the response is amazement. Now remember this word amazement before. We've, used, we've seen amazed, the English word amazed before. That the Jews were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught as one who had authority. The word translated amazed there was ekpleso. And it means to be horrified, struck with terror. Not a good word. That's not the word that's used here. The word here, thalmazo, means filled with wonder admiration, to be caused to marvel or be an awe at someone's majesty or greatness. So the Jews are amazed, they're struck with terror because of Jesus, and the Gentiles are moved to admiration about the person of Jesus. You see, that's huge, isn't it? That's huge. These Gentile people throughout the Decapolis have came to admire Jesus. And this Gentile attention is not the only thing that's drawn the crowd, though. 
Remember, some Jews from the Decapolis had came to see Jesus in Galilee all the way back at the very beginning of his ministry in 4, 23-25 where Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness amongst the people. And news about him spread through all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, uh, paralytics, and he healed them all. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So even though these Jews would have been less knowledgeable and devout than the average Jew in Palestine, they would have known of Jesus' ministry and they would have heard his teaching in the synagogue and they would have known what Jesus had said concerning the gospel of the kingdom and many of them would have seen and perhaps even experienced the healing power of Jesus themselves from early on in his ministry. So as these Jews and Gentiles interacted, the Gentiles would have heard some of the Messianic claims of Jesus from the Jews in their own neighborhoods. Said, hey, yeah, yeah, I know about that Jesus guy that the demoniac's been telling everybody about. I saw him when I was, when I was in Galilee, and he was healing people like crazy. And there's a fever pit. So when, when word gets out that Jesus has came back into the Decapolis, even though he's in the wilderness area in the mountains by himself, word gets out and people start packing lunch to go see him. They're going to go camp out. They want to be around him. And what is this large majority Gentile crowd with a smattering of Hellenistic Jews doing? Well, they're bringing needy people to Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, they'll, they'll obtain mercy. These people wanted to get their loved ones in front of Jesus, who they had this admiration and this trust in. They wanted to get people in front of him. Verse 30, large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet. It's difficult to find a better thing to do than bring needy people to Jesus, isn't it? We need to be bringing needy people to Jesus. And they were. Look at this list. They brought the lame. The lame, it's uh, crippled or maimed. It can even indicate that the person is missing a foot or any part of the body that's deformed or unable to use. Jesus used this term to describe a person who has had his hand or foot cut off in 18.8 when he says it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. So uh, missing limbs. What I mean... You got a bad back, you can kind of get fixed a little bit. But when your limb's gone, what are you going to do? Well, if you encounter the Son of God, He can grow that thing back for you. That's what, that's what you can do. So, lame and crippled, it means bent backwards or deformed. It's similar to lame, but less about injury and more about birth defects usually. Blind, it's likely that the more knowledgeable Jews might tell the Gentiles that the prophets in the Bible did many miracles, but only God Himself and the Messiah are said to open the blinded eyes. And this Jesus character, He was doing that when we saw Him back in Galilee. And mute, which often goes with deafness and is sometimes related to demon possession. When the friends and relatives found Jesus, they laid their afflicted loved ones down at His feet and He healed them. Laid here means to cast or throw in haste. Not carelessly. It's not like a... You know, not, it's not, but, but there's a merciful urgency in the Word. Like, Jesus is here. We've got to hurry and get these people that we care about in front of Jesus as fast as we can. And they couldn't get their loved ones to Jesus quickly enough. And these people didn't leave disappointed because we see Jesus performing miracles in this pagan land for these 
predominantly pagan people, starting in verse 30 through 33, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled. And as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, notice that crippled restored. That's actually talking about something's missing, and it ain't missing no more. They're restored, and the lame walking, the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and now they have nothing to eat. Now, we, we need to understand what's happened. They, they didn't go three days without food. When they came to Jesus, they expected to be there for a while and they brought large baskets full of food with them and over the course of three days, they had run out. They didn't come expecting. They weren't like, hey... When it starts at 10 o'clock, we better be out by 12 or we're going to be complaining. No, no, no. They want to be with Jesus. And they're planning to camp out. They want to be there for a while. Now they have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry. They might faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? It always amazes me. What happened in chapter 14? He fed 5,000 five loaves and two fish. And now, there's a smaller crowd, and they have seven loaves and a few small fish, and they're like, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? Man, I tell you, we can be so silly, can't we? Can, can we not forget how good God's been to us, and He can get us out of huge messes and be so faithful to us, and then a little something goes wrong, and we're, oh no, what am I going to do? And the disciples were like that. We see these miraculous healings, but after the miraculous healings, we see another miraculous feeding here. First, let's look at the miraculous healings. He healed them. Let's consider the healings and the people's response. He not only cured diseases and restored hearing and sight, but he restored those who were kulos, that's that word, maimed, without arms, legs, eyes, or other body parts. Regenerative miracles performed right in front of these Gentiles and some of the least pious Jews you ever did see. But Jesus is giving that which is holy to these Gentiles, isn't he? He's giving the bread that's intended for the children and he's willingly extending it to these people who have admiration and awe for him, who have faith in him. It's almost like he's saying they might not ethnically be Jews... But they've got faith, and they're my people. It's like that, isn't it? Can't you just imagine the spectacle? Cries for help that mingled with shouts of joy as some came to Jesus diseased and deformed while others were leaving healthy and whole. People who were sick went away cured. People who came with only one functioning arm or leg, they went away with two. And people who came blind and deaf went away seeing and hearing. People who had never spoken a word were now shouting the praises of Jesus' name. People who had never walked a step were now jumping and running for joy. By the third day, 4,000 men were there, not including women and children. We don't know how many of those came for healing, but it must have been hundreds or even thousands, right? must have been. And plus, it's possible that some had come and been healed and left during this prolonged episode of miracles. That's, it's not that everybody that was there for some amount of time stayed the entire time. At the end of the time, there are still 4,000 men plus the women and children. Could have been up to 20,000 people there. Like we've said, if it's a Maynardville Fellowship family, it's going to be husband, wife, and who knows how many kids, right? 
So thousands of miraculous healings have taken place in this Gentile Decapolis land. And what was their response to the healing? Verse 31. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speak, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Let's look at these responses. Marveled. Once again, that's that thalmazo. Same word that was used in Mark when the demoniac went and told everybody and the people were amazed by the demoniac's testimony. It's the same word here. They were filled with wonder, admiration. Mark says they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. Mark 7, 37. Compare that with the Pharisees who saw greater miracles even. And they said, He cast out devils by the prince of the devils. See the difference? Jewish leaders, I don't believe even though I've seen all this. He cast out devils by the prince of the devils. These people, they marveled, filled with admiration. The ekplesso of the Jewish crowds, in, or the terror of the Jewish crowds in comparison to the filled with wonder and admiration of these Gentile crowds. The positive amazement of these Gentiles contrasts the negative amazement of the Jews. But not only did they marvel, they glorified the God of Israel. They knew their pantheon of Greek gods couldn't do anything like they were seeing. Zeus, Aphrodite, Athena, Hercules. Well, they had some really cool shrines. I mean, the work of men's hands made some really neat statues. But they couldn't do anything. Seeing Jesus perform these miracles led this primarily Jewish crowd of idol worshippers to glorify the God of Israel. The God of Israel! This is the one. This is the true God. This is the man. And one more thing sticks out. That they stuck around. They've been there three full days. They didn't just show up, get what they needed, and leave. No, they knew they were experiencing something altogether different. A lot like your exhortation today. He's worthy and we're unworthy. And I want to be around that. And I want to be all in. And nothing else matters because I'm in the presence of the God of Israel right now. I'm not leaving. They didn't tire of seeing the God of Israel at work. Three days with little food out, of the ele- out in the elements is, is rough. But when you see God unmistakably at work, it is invigorating and nothing else matters. But the, le- the length of time led to another miracle. You have these miraculous healings, but you also have another miraculous feeding, starting in verse 32. And Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I feel compassion for the people. Notice the miracle is driven by compassion. From the earliest part of, parts of Jesus' ministry, Jesus pe- felt compassion for the multitudes. Remember in 936, they had compassion because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a, without a shepherd. He had special con- compassion for the sick and the suffering, and He healed every sort of affliction. 1414, 4, 8-16. Compassion marked Jesus. His compassion was not limited to his own Jewish people as he ministered to all men, more to the Jews, but some to the Gentiles. We've already seen that he healed this Roman centurion. But he not only had compassion, but notice he's discipling in compassion. Look at verse 32 again. Jesus called his disciples to him and told them, I feel compassion for the people. 
because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I don't want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. Jesus felt compassion for the Jews in 1414. He went ashore, saw a large crowd, and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. They're sick. But notice, he didn't tell the disciples about the compassion he had for the Jews. It's, the Bible tells us he felt it and he healed them, but he didn't call the disciples over and say, Hey, 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 I have compassion for them, now I'm going to act. Why not? Because they could identify with his compassion for the Jews. They felt compassion for fellow Jews. But for the Gentiles, that compassion was lacking. Remember their response last week when the Syrophoenician woman cried out for compassion and the disciples repeatedly implored Jesus, send her away, get rid of her. She keeps yelling at the head. No compassion for that Gentile dog. They had no compassion for her. And they had little to no compassion for this crowd either. That's part of why Jesus returned to this area. In the Talmud, in the writings of the church fathers, the people of Decapolis were described as belonging to seven pagan Canaanite nations that were driven out of their promised land by Joshua and the Israelites. Not everybody believed that all the people of the Decapolis descended from the Canaanites, but many did. These nations had worshipped Baal. They ate and sacrificed pigs, it tells us in Isaiah 65, 35, I mean 3 through 5 and 66 3. The people of Decapolis might not have sacrificed pigs, but they still ate them. That's why they're pig farmers, right? They looked down on. They're unclean. Many Jews, maybe even these disciples, thought of them as Canaanites, just like they thought of this Syrophoenician woman, and they only were reminded we didn't exterminate these people. These people shouldn't even be alive. No compassion for the people of the Decapolis. They ate unclean animals. They lived in open sexual immorality. The pagan practices of the people of the Decapolis and their anti-God values seem to be uh, continuations of the practices of those Old Testament Canaanites who used sexual perversions and even child sacrifice in their worship services. It sounds like today. Sexual perversion everywhere you look. We don't even know what a man or a woman is anymore. We have no idea what marriage is anymore. And child sacrifices, number one cause of death around is abortion, isn't it? Pretty similar. People of Jesus' day who took their scriptures seriously would have at least seen the Decapolis as a pagan culture akin to the Canaanites of old. So when I say that the disciples would have seen these people as barely better than the Syrophoenician woman, I'm quite serious. And that brings us to a good word of warning. The desire to resist the pagan views of the people of the Decapolis was a good thing. But the Jews struggled the Jews struggle to avoid all uncleanness often created a lack of love for the suffering of those sinners. Have y'all felt it? Oh, it's a dangerous thing. It can get into your heart really quick. We have to be careful. In our hatred of sin, we can become unmerciful to sinners. We can very easily forget that we are sinners in need of mercy ourselves. That was the experience of the average Jew in Jesus' day. So in contrast to that lovelessness, Jesus makes sure he lets the disciples know his deep compassion for these people. He Come over here. Hey, you see these people? You see all these Gentile people? You see all these dirty pig farmers? You see them all? They're in awe of me. They have admiration for me. They're believing. They're praising the God of Israel. 
I know they're Gentiles. I, you might think they're Canaanites. I have compassion. I have compassion for these people. The word compassion is an intense word. It, some translate it as a heart was moved with pity, but that misses the full impact of this word. It literally means to be moved in one's inward parts. A visceral response, like you, you hurt for them. It's, it's a deep word. Down in your, it's a, it, it, connotations of deep in your life, your bowels are just... Uh. The disciples would have likely had a, a visceral response to these people, but one of disgust instead of compassion. This word is often related to labor pains. And labor pains don't just happen to go away. Labor pains lead to something. There's an end product to show for them. And that's why Jesus' feeling of compassion is immediately followed by the external act of feeling their needs. He actually feeds them. If you see somebody hungry or poorly clothed and you say, go and be warmed and be fed, but you don't give them the things that are needful of the body, what good does that do? Jesus didn't just have compassion. He acted in His compassion and filled their needs. The compassionate feelings, the bowels of mercy gave gave birth to these compassionate actions. MacArthur says, the English word compassion is taken from the Latin, which means to suffer with, but it has come to mean much more than that. According to one definition, it is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the pain and remove its cause. I also want to point out that this section is basically a duplicated set of miracles. We've touched on that, but it's, it's kind of weird. Chapter 14, you have a whole lot of healings, and then you have a miraculous feeding. Chapter 15, you have a whole lot of healings, and you have a less miraculous feeding. Like, okay, you already said this. We were already amazed once. And now we're seeing something like it, but just a little less impressive. It seems like if he did something a little greater, you'd say, oh, he's repeating it, but he's showing us he can do even more. He already did it, but he's doing something a little less. Isn't that kind of odd? Why is it here twice? Well, it's showing that the Jews didn't respond to a greater miracle as well as the Gentiles responded to a little bit of a lesser miracle. They all ate and were satisfied. Notice the parallels. 14.20 and 15.37 says exactly the same thing. They all ate and were satisfied. It's intentionally repetitive to show the exact contrast, the exact comparison. They all ate and were satisfied. In chapter 14, uh, 5,000 Jewish men and as many as 25,000 people all ate and were satisfied. Now we see 4,000 mostly Gentile men and as many as 20,000 people ate and were satisfied. The Jews saw the greater miracle because the 5,000 were fed on five loaves and two fish. And in 1417, we learned that the, the uh, Jews, uh, that the, uh, I mean, in, in 1538, we learned that 4,000 are fed by seven loaves and a few small fish. But one thing I want to point out of greater magnitude is that the Gentiles had more leftovers. Look at, look at 1420. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And in 1536, they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I must have failed grade school math when I couldn't get past the greater than, less than signs. You know, the Pac-Man always eats the bigger number, right? Uh, no, I didn't. I did fine at greater than, less than. But not all baskets are created equal. 
This is from MacArthur as well. The seven large baskets mentioned after the feeding of the 4,000 are a different type than the 12 baskets used for the feeding of the 5,000. The type of basket used at the previous feeding was a small Jewish container used by an individual when traveling to carry food for one or two meals. The baskets used at the Decapolis feeding, however, were, were distinctly Gentile and quite large. They were large enough even to hold a grown man. It was one of those baskets that Paul was in when he was lowered over the wall in Damascus in Acts 9.25. Therefore, these seven large baskets held considerably more food than the twelve small baskets used in the other feeding. Where did the seven baskets come from? Well, when the Gentiles were coming to town to see Jesus, they were going to be there for a while. They brought the baskets full of food with them so that they could live on it for a little while. It had gone completely out, and now Jesus refills the full seven baskets full for their journey back. It's pretty neat, isn't it? What's the point of all this? Verse 39. In sending away the crowds... Jesus got into a boat and he came to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show a sign from heaven. There's a a transfer foreshadowed here. This whole narrative, beginning at 14.1, you have a threat on Jesus. Remember, a Gentile threat on Jesus, Herod the Tetrarch, and he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead, and He's already killed John the Baptist. Might want to kill Jesus too. And Jesus retreats from the Gentile threat to a Jewish secluded place where people come all around him and he heals them. Not much of a response is noted. But he heals everybody that comes to him. And then at the end of all the healings that take place in chapter 14, Jewish religious leaders come from Jerusalem. And the Jewish religious leaders, they become a threat to him even more than the Gentile king was. And Jesus now runs from the Jewish threat to a Gentile place and does the same thing for the Gentiles. And they glorify the God of Israel and have great admiration for Jesus and stay for days with him. But the time runs out and he has to go back to the people he was sent to. And when he goes back, he goes into the land of Galilee, back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what do they say? We need a sign. They're still not ready to believe. They would not receive the Messiah. Despite Jesus' many miracles, this Jerusalem inquisition of high-ranking Pharisees and, and scribes, they found fault with Jesus. Jesus responded by calling out their hypocrisy. You just see this. The Jews are rejecting and Jesus is calling them out and the Gentiles are receiving and being invited to the table over and over and over again. Returns to this Jewish audience, they demand a sign. The Gentiles recognized the lesser miracle they saw from Christ as coming from the God of Israel. And the Pharisees who have seen far more accused Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebul and demanding more signs if they want him to believe if they want them to believe in him. Matthew twenty one, forty two through forty four. Did you never read in the scriptures? This is where the whole book of Matthew is going is in the gathering in of all nations under Jesus. That he's not just a distinctive Israel-only God. 
but that the whole world can be the Israel of God, that He's Lord of the whole earth. Did you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the Jews, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. Takes you back to those words that he told the Roman centurion, doesn't it? Truly I say to you, I've not found so great a faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Not only is this transfer foreshadowed, but we see a table extended as well. Feeding the multitudes ties this whole section together, doesn't it? It's all about feeding. Bread is a common theme all the way through, isn't it? First, there's the 5,000 Jews that are fed in 4, 13 through 21. Then one single Canaanite woman is told it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, but then she receives metaphorical bread in the form of healing, an act of mercy toward her. Then immediately following, Jesus goes to a Gentile area and miraculously feeds them just like he has the Jews. And the 12 small baskets of leftovers seem to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, doesn't it? Twelve baskets. He feeds the Jews and there's twelve baskets, enough for the whole twelve tribes of Israel. And then seven large baskets. Remember, seven is looked at as a complete number. And they're large baskets. Enough for the whole world. All the Gentile nations and enough to feed everybody. There's a, there's a, there's a symbolism. He's doing more for the Jews while he's there in his earthly ministry. He does more. He feeds more of them, 5,000 compared to four. But the leftovers, there's 12 small baskets, enough for all the Jews, but seven large baskets, enough for the whole world. He's going to do more for the whole world after he's gone. What better way to teach that Gentiles are just as important to God as Jews and that Christianity is a worldwide religion than this object lesson? That's James Boyce. Our Lord, our Lord ended up each phase of His ministry with a feeding. He ended the ministry in Galilee with a feeding of the 5,000. Listen to the wording. 14, 19. We've already read it, but I'll read it again. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, He blessed the food, and He broke the loaves, and He gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the crowds. He ended his Gentile ministry with the feeding of the 4,000. Listen to the similar language, 1536. He took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks and he broke them and he started giving it to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the people. And he has one more ministry he'll finish later. He ended the Judean ministry before his death on the cross with the feeding of his own disciples in the upper room. Matthew 26, 26. When they were eating, Jesus took some bread And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. But this one's different. When did the disciples give this bread to the people? Remember in the other two feedings, he gives it to the people. In this one he says, take, eat, this is my body. But there's no giving it to them to give it to the people. Until after he raises from the dead. 
Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have twelve baskets, enough for the Jews. We have seven baskets, enough for the whole world. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Come and sit at the table, you Gentile. You are not dogs who get scraps. He has compassion on you. And He displayed that compassion on the cross. How can you see Emmanuel bleed and doubt His willingness to save? John 1, 11-13. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. Those from the east and the west, they don't come as dogs beside the table. They come as children, children of God, sitting at the table. If He fed them with miracles, metaphorically, if He fed them with real bread, will He not feed them with a greater bread, the bread that came down out of heaven, His own shed blood, His own broken body for the sins of the whole world? Why do we want temporary healings? that you still die a little later, or temporary feedings where you eat and then you're hungry again just a little later, when He offers you the water of life where you drink and you never thirst again, and the bread of life that if you eat, you never die. Praise God that we, as the Israel of God, have something better than manna, something better than mere temporary life-sustaining bread. We have the bread that came down out of heaven. We'll close with John 6, 53-58, where Jesus says... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and die. He who eats this bread will live forevermore. What good news we have in the gospel. We have the bread that came down of heaven. The Pharisees, they thought they had bread. Jesus warns in our next passage in 16.1, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They thought they were going to get to heaven because they lived good enough on their own. But it, was, it wasn't pure bread. It was leavened bread. It was, it was mixed with evil. They thought it would save them, but it would only damn them. We come as poor in spirit, knowing we have nothing to bring. That we need something external, a righteousness external to ourselves. And that's what Jesus is. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. His body was broken. His blood was shed. That's our hope. Whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, He is the bread that came down out of heaven. Eat and live. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the, the, the privilege of being made children of God. That You uh, gave us that true bread out of heaven and that we have hope of eternal life. Lord, I pray that we are moved more to all than the Gentiles at that day that had less understanding than we do. Lord, and we thank You for the greater miracles that You've done for us than You had even done for them at that time. 
God, help us to uh, be disciples who uh, that body was broken, that blood was shed, and now we're commissioned to give to others. Let us give that message of hope to others that they might believe and become sharers in the blessings of heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.